Hello, and welcome to episode 126 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Delegate Aruna Miller, a Maryland State Delegate from Montgomery County's District 15. Uh, Aruna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on the show. The first question I'd like to ask you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Well, Jordan, uh, I came to this country as an immigrant, and I have been tremendously benefited by the you know, opportunities that our country has to offer. And I want to make sure that these same opportunities are available for every individual in the United States. So I have this incredible you know, position of being able to serve the people of District 15, and as a policymaker, I think I have been able to have a positive impact on my community through the laws that we pass, as well as being, you know, doing constituent services, being able to make sure that individuals have access to their government, and if they hit any obstacles, that our office is able to help them get to the goals that they're trying to achieve. Now, there are there is an increasing population. Uh, actually, the, the population in Montgomery County is rapidly increasing, and it includes a number of immigrant families, uh, which would include some of the constituents of District 15, which you represent in the Maryland House of Delegates. Can you speak for a moment about the uh, nature of, of the legislation or the constituent services, the, the real work that you've done to help make lives a little bit easier for immigrants today as you once were yourself uh, earlier uh, in your life? Sure. Well, you know, many times, Jordan, when immigrants come to the country, their biggest uh, task is trying to assimilate into this new environment. And oftentimes what happens is immigrants do not tend to be as politically active and engaged in their community again, because they're just trying to assimilate themselves, trying to learn the language, the new culture. They focus on education, which is how I grew up. So what I'm trying to do as a immigrant legislator is trying to reach out to the communities and get them more engaged, trying to make them understand how important it is that their voice be heard and the concerns that they have be shared with their local elected officials as well as their federal and state elected officials. So that's one of the biggest tasks that I have through my constituent services is that I go to many of the immigrant um, cultural community events and share with them the importance of their engagement as part of our democracy. And also, I think when they see someone that looks like them, that represents um, maybe some of the history that they've also faced in the country and the challenges, they tend to be more open-minded and want to be engaged at that point. Interesting. So they're able to see, and, and just for our listeners who don't know, where were you originally from? Where were you born? So I was born in India, a southern state called Andhra Pradesh. So I came to this country when I was seven years old. And my father, of course, my mom and dad immigrated first. My father came here in search of the American dream. He was an engineer. He worked for IBM and um, really paved the way for my siblings and I. And I hope I can do the same for others that are in the state of Maryland to making sure that their dreams have, you know, can come true. You just, to- sure. You just mentioned a moment ago that 
when immigrants see that you look like them, um, they're more willing to open up. Perhaps that may be female immigrants looking to, to you as a female legislator or, or um, particularly in, uh, immigrants from Southeast Asia. But do you find that, for instance, uh, immigrants of different demographic types, for example, perhaps uh, Latin American immigrants are also more likely to open up to you because you've also gone through the immigration experience? Absolutely. I think the fact that when you feel like a minority and you look like one, you tend to gravitate towards those that are similar to you. I don't think that's unusual. I think that's just human nature to do that. So I don't think I'm just restricted to only South India or you know South Asians and only those that come from India. I think I speak to all you know immigrant groups. I think they tend to open up to me more. And when you speak to them, you said that you try to emphasize the importance of being civically engaged, perhaps voting or or making their issues known to their legislators. What, how do you actually make that case to these individuals who are, as, you're, as you said earlier, struggling to learn the language and assimilate and are focusing on their children's education? How do you tell them that civic engagement is important? What, what case do you make to them? Well, this is what I tell them. I say many of us have come to the United States and we've achieved the American dream, which is, you know, to be educated and successful. You have a nice career and you have your monetary wealth that you've, you know, been able to achieve, which is terrific. I said, but the area that we need to take this economic power and turn it into something even far greater is through policy making. So I tell them, look, if you're not at the, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're on the menu. And I go through and I <laughs> tell them why you're going to get eaten up alive if you don't play a critical role in policy making. Because I tell them from the moment you wake up to the moment you close your eyes, policy making is going to impact your daily life. You wake up, the first glass of water you drink, is that water clean or not? That's policy making. I mean, look what's happening in Flint, Michigan today. When you get in the car and you drive on the roads, are they congested and filled up that you're just stuck in traffic? That's policy making. How will you invest in transportation? When you send your kids off to school, do they have the resources they need? That's policy making. How will you invest in education? From, and then how much taxes you pay? Policy making. Whether or not our country is at war or at peace, that's policy making. So that's how I try to, you know, impart upon them how important it is for their engagement. I think when you give real concrete um, evidence like that and examples, Jordan, then mm -hmm. the light bulb goes off. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I get it. Mm -hmm. So was there – so, Aruna, you came to this country at around the age of seven years old and grew up and went to, through high school and college. At what point, or was there even a point, when someone tried to make that same case to you, being the, the daughter, or actually being a first-generation immigrant yourself, and a daughter, obviously, of immigrants, was there anyone who reached out to you and tried to make you civically engaged? And if not, how is it that you ever ended up getting involved with the local Democratic Party and subsequently uh, entering elected office? You know, that's a great question, Jordan. When I first got civically engaged was, believe it or not, after the 2000 presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. I was so upset because I had voted, and I thought I was being civically engaged just because I voted, 
But then when we saw the results of the election, how Al Gore was trailing by a few hundred votes in the state of Florida, and ultimately it was the Supreme Court that handed over the office of the presidency to George Bush, I was livid. I was upset. I was like, this is not right. And then, you know, it occurred to me at that point, being civically engaged isn't just about voting. You have to be there as part of the grassroots campaign, going knocking on doors. And I asked myself that, wow, you know, had I been able to take some of my time, go to Florida, maybe I could have made a difference. That's when I picked up the phone, called up the local Democratic Party, and I said, I want to volunteer. What can I do? So, wow. So it was just that phone call. And then they, what did they tell you? Did they, did they get you involved in campaign? Absolutely. Are you kidding? They're always looking for volunteers. So they said, okay, <laughs> come on over. We want you to be a precinct official. I'm like, what is a precinct official? I had no idea what that was. Mm-hmm. So you and could for our listeners much- who don't know, what is that? Precinct official really is an individual that serves as a li- liaison from the community that they live in to the um, Montgomery County Democratic Central Committee. In this case, that's my party, right? The Democratic Party. So you serve, it is assumed that because you live in that neighborhood, you know your neighbors and you will reach out to them about issues that are happening at the political level. When elections are coming you know, forward, that you actually are there at the polling place giving out information on candidates for our party and trying to encourage voters from your own neighborhood that are coming to the polling place to vote for the people that your party is representing. So that's what a precinct official is. And if any listeners um, to this episode don't identify with the Democratic Party, but perhaps identify as an independent or a Republican or a libertarian, are there opportunities for them to also be precinct officials or is this exclusively the territory of the Democratic Party? There's absolutely opportunities for them. The Republican Party has their own central committee. And as far as I understand, I'm not sure about independent and libertarian, but I do know for a fact the Republican Party has a similar setup as the Democratic Party. And probably if somebody just wanted to get engaged on any issue, they would be able to self-organize with their own, within their own community and try to promote their issue regardless of whether it's uh, tied to a particular um, even political party or not. For instance, advocacy for uh, the bus rapid transit or the purple line or funding for local education. Isn't that correct? Absolutely, Jordan. There are just so many wonderful ways that we can be engaged about the issues that matter to us. You know, whatever that interest may be, for some it may be the environment, others it may be animals, you know, others it may be, you know, business environment, improving it. So, yes, there are countless ways for us to be engaged, and I encourage any individual to find that interest that you have and get engaged. So I'd like to hear your voice. So I'd like to transition at this point from to on, on actually in the same topic back over to you though. What are the issues that really matter to you that engage you and that you've been advocating for in your position as a delegate as part of the Montgomery County delegation? Sure. Well, I currently serve on the Appropriations Committee mm-hmm. on the House side, and this committee, of course, was tasked with passing the balanced budget. We look at the budget that the governor hands over to us. And we try to make sure that the that that the budget is fair, you know, mm-hmm. fiscally prudent and socially responsible. That's our number one priority. So 
you know, while most people may think the budget is somewhat dry and not as interesting as a piece of legislation, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, the budget affects every individual in the state of Maryland because it determines how we invest in our transportation, public education, public safety, public health. And it's probably the most important for those who are the most vulnerable members of our community, which includes those living in poverty, the elderly, and the disabled. So, so that's... With, so with such, I mean, uh, with such a wide-ranging amount, and basically what you're talking about with the budget is you're talking about the legislature spending Marylanders' tax dollars, or in fact the tax dollars of anyone who comes into Maryland and does business purchases a soda in a local McDonald's, anyone who spends money and pays a tax of some kind, that's basically what the budget's spending, right? Right. Well, the revenue comes from many different sources, Jordan. One is, of course, through the sales tax. Another is through your income taxes. Then we also get it from property taxes. It, you know, all of this comes together, and then we also get money from the federal government. We have special taxes, which is when you go pay for your gas and you pay for the gas tax that goes into a special fund. Yes, so there's many sources, including the lottery and uh, the new gambling facilities. We have money from there, you know, uh, trickles down into the revenues of our budget. And then we take for example, this year, it could be in the order of $43 billion. And we look to see how do we spend this money fairly to make sure all the programs that we have available and the needs, the shared priorities for Marylanders are met. So what are you, when you're looking at a budget, and I believe you you mentioned, you enumerated uh, that a budget ought to be socially responsible and fiscally prudent. How do you weigh and determine exactly what would constitute a socially responsible budget or a fiscally prudent budget? Are there certain metrics, or how would you know if it meets those criteria or not? Well, you know, what I just described, one of the things that, you know, people are most vulnerable to the budget are the ones that are living in poverty, the Mm -hmm. elderly, and the disabled. So we want to make sure, number one, that the services that they depend on are met. Then we also Mm -hmm. have public education is a number one priority for the Marylanders. We want to make sure our schools are equipped with the resources they need so our students, which eventually will become the future of Maryland, have everything they need to succeed. We want to make Mm -hmm. sure our college tuition is kept at a low um, tuition rate so, you know, it is accessible to those that want to have higher education. Public health, this is a big issue. As you know, at the federal level right now, there is talk of, you know, the Trump administration repealing the ACA. Hopefully, you know, he will, the administration will not repeal it, but they've, you know, they're already working towards that goal. And if that happens, it's going to have a huge fiscal impact on the state of Maryland in the order of billions of dollars if they don't come with a replacement plan as well. So, so this is how we're how we're socially responsible to make sure the health needs, the educational needs, and the you know other services that the most vulnerable members of our community needs are met. Earlier, you said that sometimes for immigrants, particularly for the immigrant populations you're talking about, providing concrete examples can really be helpful in demonstrating the impact of being civically engaged. 
On that same vein, is it possible for you to speak about a concrete piece of legislation that eventually became law that you worked on, either as a sponsor, co-sponsor, or behind the scenes, that was able to have a positive impact on the lives of immigrants in Montgomery County? Sure. I think one of the um, most uh, notable pieces of legislation that the General Assembly passed was the DREAM Act. This was for those undocumented uh, students that are living in the state of Maryland, let's say who came here because their parents came here through no fault of their own, Mm -hmm. have called America their home, went to high school here, graduated from Maryland high schools, but when they wanted to go to college, they were perceived Mm -hmm. as having to pay out-of-state tuition. So we Mm -hmm. changed that to make sure that they would be under the category of in-state tuition, as you know, which is much more affordable than out-of-state. This was very so, controversial. Mm-hmm. And, you so know, Brian, I'm glad to, yeah, go ahead. You, continue, yeah, it's very controversial, and what else? So it was very controversial because some felt that um, in the assembly that they shouldn't, these students who are undocumented should not be afforded the same opportunities or should be paying the same amount of tuition as an in-state legal citizen of the state of Maryland. Um, we were successful in the General Assembly thanks to the leadership of many, including Delegate Ann Kaiser, who's now the Chairman of Ways and Means, to be able to pass the bill. And then, of course, mm-hmm. it was also on the voter referendum, and the voters decided that this was a fair thing to do. So there's a concrete you know, piece of legislation that, it, that really helped a lot of the immigrant community that lives in the state of Maryland. So there's a there's a play, let's just say um, Poolsville, which is a town in your in District 15 that you represent, and let's say uh, an immigrant family from country X Y Z is living in Poolsville, and their child grows up and now is all of a sudden 17 years old, takes the SAT, does well, wants to go to College Park within state of the state of Maryland, and uh, and basically applies to go to College Park, gets admitted because this child gets straight A's and got a perfect 1600 on the SAT and instead of, and then and then the child is given a tuition a bill for tuition and instead of the rate being in-state tuition which obviously the child grew up in Poolsville which is Maryland so it would be in-state because there prior to this bill becoming law this student would have had to pay the same amount of money that someone coming from Colorado might have had to pay because they didn't could not prove that they were legally born here or had a legal uh, re- green card or resident uh, uh, proof of residency in the state of Maryland. Is that what was the case before the DREAM Act passed? That's exactly it, Jordan. And one of the things, the compromises that we came to is, you know, many people believe that undocumented uh, individuals that are living in the state of Maryland don't pay any taxes. Well, as a matter of fact that they do, they have a employee, um, you know, registration number that actually, I think it's called EIN, and mm-hmm. um, it actually, you know, they have to pay taxes even though they're undocumented. So, you know, this community is living here. It's part, an integral part of our community, pays for, you know, works in industries that many of us benefit from, whether it's mm-hmm. as restaurant, you know, workers or custodial workers or whatever it is that they're doing, small businesses, they are an integral part of our community. They're paying taxes. And so 
why shouldn't their students, be, you know, why, why shouldn't their children be able to have the same access that yours and, well, hopefully in the future you will have many children, but at least my children <laughs> and other citizens of the state of Maryland have access to. I see. So I guess the premise of the opposition's argument was um, Maryland, so all state schools, including higher education, receive subsidies from taxpayers. And exactly. the argument of the and, and so the argument of the opposition was, well, these undocumented people aren't taxpayers, so why should we subsidize them any more than we should subsidize some student from another state? But what you're saying is actually the term undocumented is somewhat of a misnomer because though they may be undocumented by the immigration services, the, the, uh, the federal agency that may control um, whether they have a visa or whether they came here legally or not, they actually are documented through their employer's identification number through the IRS, and they are paying sales tax when they buy a, a pizza, or they or they pay the gas tax, or they um, or they pay uh, personal income tax through their employer. Um, so, in fact, many of these undocumented people are paying taxes, and therefore ought to be eligible for the in-state tuition. And, and that was kind of the argument that you were making in favor of the Dream Act. Is that right? That's correct, Jordan. Excellent. Um, well, glad we got that covered. That is a concrete example of a benefit that you clearly brought back to your constituents. Did, did any of them react to that? Did that help consolidate, solidify in their mind the benefits that civic engagement may bring to their own community? Absolutely. I mean, it's not just that, but there's so many other bills that we introduce that affect Marylanders at so many levels, regardless of whether what your ethnicity is. So I mean, mm -hmm. that's just one of them. We also, you know, of course, passed the uh, Marriage Equality Act, um, mm -hmm. and so that was significant. We also were able to repeal the death penalty, which is very, mm -hmm. um, you know, significant because it tends to be people of color that tend to be the ones, um, you know, that would be, hmm. you know, impacted most by the death penalty. So, I mean, I could give numerous examples that go on and on. But what's interesting, Jordan, is that, you know, some of the legislation that we get in the General Assembly is often brought to us by our own constituents because they face the unique situation that perhaps the law doesn't address, and they'll bring those issues to us. So I've passed legislation before where constituents have brought it to me. So it wasn't even, you know, my... Yeah, my ideal or an advocacy group coming to me with this particular piece of legislation, but a constituent. So that's why it's so important that people be engaged, you know, because you can change the future of Maryland. You can change the way things happen to you and others by just having so, this engagement. So as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you a final question, which is uh, suppose you're speaking um, to one of these immigrant families uh, in your district in, in Potomac, Maryland. And I'd like you to uh, suppose that you're, you're speaking to this family and talk about your motivations and, and what you've done to some extent and, and how you can make it better for other communities. So if you take a moment and just speak about what the meaning is of your lifetime of public service. You, you've been, for the last 17 years, you've been getting increasingly more engaged in politics on a on a local and state level in, this, in in Maryland and I'd like to ask you to take a moment and suppose you're speaking to these immigrants in your district and tell them about what the legacy that you hope will be have been created by your years of public service and how they too may follow along that vein of public service. 
Thank you, Jordan. I think the first thing that I would say is, again, that I came to this country as an immigrant and I chased the American dream. And I feel very much that the country has given me so many tremendous opportunities. And I want to give back to a country that's given me so much. And that's why I have spent my entire life in public service. I'm a civil Mm -hmm. engineer and I work for Montgomery County Department of Transportation. That was one way that I could give back through my professional background and educational background. Then, you know, life uh, took me uh, in a different direction and I got involved in the political environment. And I think that's another wonderful way to give back. But I think each individual needs to know that their worth in the community and what they can give back is unique to them. It could be through their professional ways. It could be by being politically engaged. It could be by being an advocate for a particular issue. But the important thing is that you never take your eye off the ball. Democracy is such a delicate balance, and you have to be engaged. You have to have your voice heard because the more people that are engaged, the stronger our democracy is. And I always say, Jordan, that the road to progress is always under construction, that there is no perfect point that we reach. We have to work at it each and every single day to achieve not only your dreams, but your job is also to make sure others achieve their dreams. That's when you become significant. So that has been Delegate Aruna Miller, who represents District 15 in the Maryland General Assembly's House of Delegates. She speaks about her lifetime of civic service as a means of giving back, especially to those who are poor, elderly, disabled, uh, judging the strength of our entire society based upon how our society treats those among us who are most vulnerable. She uses an example, her own immigrant experience, as one that she can uh, used to relate to her constituents. She speaks about uh, the importance of civic engagement and political engagement, uh, the underlying value drivers of being socially responsible and fiscally prudent. And she seeks to, seeks to uh, always remind herself uh, that an active, uh, that, that it's important that democracy uh, is dependent upon uh, continue the continued uh, con- continual uh, civic activism that every person in the community ought to try to be civically engaged um, in order to take ownership of their own community, their own lives, and improve the world for each other. So, Aruna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jordan. And this has been episode 126 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. Remember to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes or on your podcast app on Apple products. And uh, should you wish to speak to Delegate Miller, you're welcome to leave a voicemail on the number listed in the Contact Us page of the Public Interest Podcast website. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.